Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week we talk to people active in business and the economy about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services, and some are featured on this podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio today, we have Tom Nightingale, Dogger Bank Wind Farm Stakeholder Manager, which is soon going to be the world's largest offshore wind farm. Down the line, we've Adam Herbert, CEO and co-founder of the Manchester-based Go Live Data. It's an award-winning team of data marketing experts that launched in 2020 and are now working with household names such as Amazon and AXA. And later, my colleague Josh, Josh Havakin, will be speaking to Salvia Mirza, who is Managing Director of Resonant Consulting, a UK firm which fuses traditional management consulting pr uh, principles with disruptive powers of artificial intelligence. And what a week to talk about AI on the Northern Business Podcast with one of the first global summits about AI happening at Bletchley Park uh, this week with Rishi Sunak chairing. Well, first of all, welcome everyone. Um, we'll, we'll start with you, Tom. Um, I, this podcast is based in Northeast England, so many of us are familiar with what's happening off the East Coast. But for our viewers outside of the Northeast of England who are interested in business, what is the Dogger Bank Wind Farm? So Dogger Bank Wind Farm will be the world's largest offshore wind farm when it's completed. Um, we're building it in three phases. So they're all 1.2 gigawatts each. So we'll be 3.6 gigawatts in total when we're finished, which will represent about 5% of the UK's electricity demand or be able to power about 5 million UK homes. So it's a huge project. It isn't an half huge. I mean, that is almost what nuclear has been doing, isn't it? If you think about the percentage of power that comes from nuclear compared to that, that commitment. It is, exactly. It's one of the largest infrastructure projects in the UK at the moment, and it's costing £9 billion to build the wind farms. So it's, uh, it's in its early stages at the moment, but we recently announced First Power. Um, so we're now producing power from the wind farm and we'll finish each phase over the next three years. So Dogger Bank A will be finished in 2024, and then Dogger Bank B in 2025, and Dogger Bank C fully operational, the full wind farm, in 2026. We'll talk about some of the technical issues in a minute, but first of all, people who are not familiar with the landscape of the North Sea, perhaps listening or viewing in the, in the Northwest, We'll have only heard of Doggerbank from the fishing forecasts, and they. But Doggerbank is a peculiar location topographically, isn't it? It is. So it's actually on a sandbank um, out in the middle of the North Sea. It's 130 kilometres at its closest point to the wind farm. And uh, a few thousand years ago, before the Ice Age, it actually connected the UK to mainland Europe. And so that means that uh, now it's underwater, but it's actually quite shallow. And so we can benefit from fixed bottom wind farms, which means that the foundations are on the actual seabed, but we still get the benefit of really fast wind speeds from being out in the middle of the North Sea. Now, we're at the stage of the building and uh, companies like yourself are operating and therefore finding the money to actually build it. Uh, take us, uh, go, go north-south along the East Coast and explain the kind of things that are being used to build this wind farm. So first of all, there's a lot of activity with the ports. Um, so up at the port of Blythe, um, they've been handling the blades and the nacelle for Doggerbank um, via GE. Um, and they're being tested at the offshore renewable energy catapult. At the port of Tyne, um, where I'm based in South Tyneside, we have the operations and maintenance base for the wind farm. 
and this we've already confirmed will be for an operational life of at least 35 years. Now it looks like an air traffic control center. I've seen it on television. It's 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 got a real uh, a, a, a real sort of war room feel, doesn't it? It's it does. It's incredible, actually, and I describe it like NASA. Yeah, inside there, it's it's an amazing building, and actually, it's an asset of national importance, critical national infrastructure, because we'll be uh, monitoring so much of the UK's electricity through that facility as well. Um, so that's uh, also has a big opportunity for the north of England because it's the UK central control room and we can plug in any wind farm and monitor them from there as well. So it could even monitor overseas wind farms from oh, the wow. control room too. All right, so that's a significant asset and that's an Equinor asset. That's a, that's... That is an Equinor asset. Equinor provides services mm-hmm. to the wind farm and um, that's an important point actually because the wind farm's a joint venture. So Equinor is responsible for operations. We're a 40% partner. SSE Renewables are responsible for development and construction of the wind farm. They're a 40% partner. And then there's another company called Vagron who have a 20% share in the wind farm as well. Okay, so we're going north-south. So we come down the north, uh, north, the northeast coast and we get to, I suppose, Sunderland Teesside next. Yeah, so Sunderland and some of the other ports around um, the northeast Lep area are involved also just through things like safe harbour if there's bad weather for the vessels. And mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of vessels working out in the field at the moment. Um, down in Teesside, GE have selected Able Seaton Port as the marshalling harbour, and they've already created over 500 jobs down there, and they've basically taken over the port, um, and we've got lots of blades and the cells. If you drive past, it's an amazing scene at the moment, and um, we've lots of towers there as well. And these are the world's largest turbines that have ever been used, so when the blade tip points upwards, it's 260 metres tall, um, so absolutely enormous structures, and we're building 277 of those. I think the shortcut to, for understanding that for people who are still in Imperial, it's about as big as the Shard. Well, it's not quite as big as the Shard, but the Shard and one other building in Birmingham are the only two buildings taller than our right. than our turbine. But there's only one each of those, and we're building 277. Of- yeah, I mean, if you look at a wind turbine on shore, which people might have driven by, they 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 are dwarfed by these, aren't they? Yeah, they are. It's really hard to try and describe the size, but if you've seen the Angel of the North. One of our blades is twice the wingspan of the Angel of the North, so they're 107 metres long each, just the blades. And uh, the River Tees is going to be bringing things in and out as well. Uh, and then go down to Humberside? So actually, um, Humberside and um, Teesside are involved, not just in terms of, of different ports and supply chain involvement, but that's where the cables connect. So for the first two phases, Doggerbank A and B, we connect in East Riding of Yorkshire, so that's a 2.4 gigawatts connection. And then for Doggerbank C, along with another wind farm, Sophia Wind Farm, um, they connect in Redcar and Cleveland as well. So um, between them, that's 2.6 gigawatts of connection. So, so all of this is, is a tremendous engineering project. I mean, it is comparable to building out the North Sea oil rigs when North Sea oil was exploited in the late 60s and the 70s, isn't it, really? It is, yeah. And it's a new form of energy production. Um, I think at the moment it's really important that there's a, an energy mix as we go through the energy transition, but building out more and more offshore wind is really going to be important to help the UK meet its net zero targets. And Dogger Bank really is a flagship project for the UK, but also the world in offshore wind at the moment. Now, you hear critics say that offshore wind is uh, has its problems. Uh, let, let, let's give you a chance to knock them down because you hear them regularly. You'll hear... There are wildlife problems. Whales get disorientated, birds get killed. Is there any evidence of that? 
I mean, there's certainly concerns around that, and we work um, with all of the different groups um, that are interested in that. We have to be really mindful about other ocean users, mm -hmm. um, land users around where we um, we have to lay cables, for example, as well. Um, but we have performed some tests um, as well. So we did a, a test up at High Wind Scotland, which is the world's first floating wind farm, which Equinor operates up in Scotland. Um, and that was looking at, uh, at sea life um, around the wind farm as well and impacts. And uh, one of our competitors recently did a two-year study about um, birds and found that no birds at all were impacted right. by their wind farm. Um, so there's lots and lots of, of different activities that are ongoing all this is really important work that has to be done through the consenting process. And, and, you know, th these new technologies always cause this. I remember when mobile phones were first being rolled out, finding there were lots of scares about mobile phone masts and health-related issues. Let's talk about the uh, other uh, criticisms, which is wind doesn't blow all the time. So what do you do about resilience of supply? It, but perhaps in the North Sea there is a latent wind. Well, I think it's very, very... There's not the doldrums as often. I think it's fair to say that the, it's not always windy. So the turbines will not be spinning at all times. And that's why it's really important to have an energy mix. And that's where things like nuclear can mm. can come in as well. Um, but offshore wind, we don't predict our turbines. We don't build a business case around turbines operating 100% of the time. Right. They have a capacity factor, which is the expectation of how much they'll operate for. So now, um, we expect this to be quite high on, on Dogger Bank compared to the industry average. And the other question, uh, I'm asking you all these questions. I know you're very familiar with this. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, so I, hopefully you'll be fine with these questions. But the, the other thing you sometimes hear politicians say, and they don't always have a grasp of the arguments in the way the industry works, is it will be cheaper energy. But it isn't automatically cheaper energy, is it? Because electricity has a market price. And whether it's produced by wind or or, or uh, oil or gas or 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 or, um, or, 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 or nuclear, there is a, a a regular price for electricity. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on this area, but the what we know is that we've agreed a price for the power that we produce, mm. and if the power prices are much higher than that, which they are at the moment, um, then the government would actually benefit from the difference in price right now. But there is an opportunity there that consumers could benefit from that difference as well. Um, and one of the great things about offshore wind is we know the cost of producing that electricity is cheaper than many other forms of electricity. Well, you can't deal with the cost of production unless you can produce. So at least you're doing that. So just give us the time scale. We've had this uh, October 23, where the first energy comes in from the first wind turbines that are out there. What's the likelihood for a very fast completion? Because there is a, a challenging timetable. Yeah, I think that the timetable uh, for, for any you know major project like this um, is always going to see movement. But we're still on schedule to finish Dogger Bank A within 2024, Dogger Bank B within 2025, and Dogger Bank C within 2026. But this project has been going for over 10 years. You know, it's not something that's only just happened. We started installing the foundations for all of the, the turbines last year. So even though some of the turbines um, still need to be installed, all of the 95 foundations for the first phase are in the ocean. Um, and most of those now have the transition piece, which if you've seen an offshore wind turbine, that's the yellow part that the turbine sits on top of. So there's huge progress. Our substations uh, uh, for Dogger Bank A is energized, and we also have the foundation for the next phase, um, substation as well and this is the uk's first hvdc wind farm as well and um, so it's got lots and lots of innovation and firsts happening on the project too
But well, just a couple of last questions, just quick ones. You've got other uh, technology that's out there, including shipping technology. You built this ship, the Grampian Derwent, and that's a highly technologically advanced vessel for servicing. It is, yes. So that's our flagship vessel, actually. That's the second vessel that we had delivered. We've had a, a naming ceremony recently for this vessel too. Um, and it's the biggest one of the four. Um, the other three are all the same signs. They're all named after Northeast Rivers, actually. So as well as the okay. Derwent, we have the Tyne, the Tees and the Tweed. Um, the Derwent sleeps around 60 people and it has a heli deck on, so we can transfer by helicopter if we need to. Um, the guys will work offshore for two weeks at a time on these ships. Um, but the other three are slightly smaller in this. They accommodate 40 persons on each one of those ships as well. And, and last question, we've talked about the offshore wind farm at Doggerbank, and that's happening, and you've given us a timetable. But there are more innovations in offshore wind because there's this new um, uh, uh, methodology of doing offshore wind called floating offshore wind. I know that Equinor is into that. You've alluded to it. Just a brief explanation of what that is and what the future is for that. Well, 80% of the ocean is too deep for fixed bottom wind turbines, which are what has mainly been used so far in offshore wind. And that's because companies have worked out from the coastline as the water is shallower before it gets deeper. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, uh, most of the ocean will require floating wind. So if we want to keep building out floating wind uh, and well offshore wind, it, many of it will have to be floated in Equinor leads uh, in floating. So it's basically vessels and... Well, vessels may be the wrong word, but platforms with which are tethered, but they float, and then there's a, a turbine on, a, on top. Yeah, but it certainly doesn't do that. But no. It's <laughs> definitely stays it's like that. All right. It's a beat of engineering, actually. Yeah, it does sound like it. It's definitely worth exploring next time you come in, because the technology, I'm sure the Northeast and the Scottish industry that supports it is getting innovative in delivering that. Yeah, and if you think about it as well, one of the big advantages of offshore wind is being able to support coastal communities all over the UK. So if you can build wind farms anywhere, either fixed or floating, you create opportunities for local ports, local communities. And on Dogger Bank, we've created or supported over 2,000 jobs already in the UK and related to construction and operations, but 400 of those are associated with the long-term operations in South Tyneside. So great opportunity to be able to create lots of long-term good, highly skilled, highly paid jobs for people in local communities. Well, Tom, thank you very much. And we're going to go from you, who represents one of the biggest businesses in the UK operating at the moment, to a small business that's being very dynamic and innovative. Adam Herbert, joining us from Go Live Data. You're the CEO and co-founder based in uh, the Northwest. Is Manchester based? It is indeed. It Excellent. is indeed. What do you make of the, uh, the thing you've just heard, with the offshore wind farm now delivering wind? Does it matter to you as a person where the wind comes, where the energy comes from? Oh, absolutely, massively. We're, we're living in a world of renewable energy, ethics, where's things being sourced from, how to get things better, how to be more compliant, how to be a better human, basically. And this is, this is amazing. Funny enough, I was talking to a company not so long ago who are going to be the sellers of renewable energy, and we're talking to them about how we help them reach out to businesses and make you guys a viable option for your energy as well. So it kind of links up as well, which is really cool. Fantastic. I know my own business works with companies that are in the supply chain. So it does, and I, I run a PR firm, so it does actually link to uh, all sorts of different elements. Uh, it does have a, a, a ripple effect. So thank you for the good work. That's what we like to hear. Uh, moving on, Adam, talk about your business. It's a relatively new business. It was founded during uh, 2020, the COVID year, and Go Live Data. Tell us your USP. What, what's, what's special about Go Live Data? What services do you supply? So 
I like to think we're special, absolutely. We, we work in three primary areas. So we're a B2B-focused business. We only work B2B. Um, we work in data, so supplying data, cleaning data, enhancing data, analyzing data. And then we do a whole host of engagement services. So that's really our second arm where we'll work with a customer, we'll define audiences that they want to communicate to, and we'll work out the best strategy, whether that's email marketing, direct mail, uh, social, so on and so forth. And then we also work with customers around real true marketing attribution. So one of the biggest challenges in marketing full stop is where does your leads, where do your opportunities actually come from? Because most people work on the first touch or last touch attribution. With us, we give the full journey of what's really happening with lead origination and generation. So yeah, it's been there crazy three and a half years. We've grown and grown and grown. And yeah, we're in a really good place now. Well, you're at two and a half million turnover. You're at 15 staff and you've got some really good uh, brands that you're acting for. And it's it's a fantastic to be able to say that. It's great to see a growing business because um, the business environment, in my view at the moment, is a little bit more optimistic than it was a few months ago. Are you finding uh, inquiries consistent at the moment? Or have they gone up a bit? Where, where do you think the environment is? Yeah, so we haven't seen a major drop-off in terms of people wanting to market and get their data sorted or anything like that. And just going back to the clients that we work with, that they very much came on very early on with us. So they were very much about where are we going as a business? What's our journey? What are we trying to do, which is different from what is a stagnated industry in the data industry. So they, they came on and they benefited greatly from our innovation. We're a tech business first and foremost. So it's been a real, real drive forward. In terms of market conditions, we haven't seen a huge drop off in terms of inquiries and businesses want to do things and actually more so when we look at leads generated and companies who are making inquiries to other businesses that's certainly only ever increasing that that could be because of our tech obviously ha 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 or it could be just because the market is like that anyway now before i came uh, onto the program today because i knew i was talking to you i did a little check of my junk email box and i had 208 junk emails since monday and i looked at my regular inbox and I had on LinkedIn 18 LinkedIn-generated messages that had also gone on to my regular business email box because it's linked to my business email. And most of those LinkedIn emails, I don't mind viewers of this program emailing me on LinkedIn, but most of them appeared to be bot-generated. You know, can I help you sell your business? Do you need a leadership course? Everyone's sending me stuff about leadership courses. No, no, no. I've had enough of it. But, but... For me, that's bad use of data. You're hopefully the antidote to that. Absolutely, 100%. So the industry or the data industry or email marketing industry, whatever you want to call it, outreach, has always been get as much stuff out the door as possible in front of as many people as possible. And touch wood, you'll generate lots and lots of inquiries and opportunities. Go Live Data is built the opposite way around. We take a less is more approach. So one of the ways we work with customers on day dot is really getting into the teeth of what is a true opportunity for that business. Who do they want to contact? Who do they want to market to? And the reasons why they also want to do so. So in the GDPR PECA world, you have to have a genuine legitimate interest. And we utilize our data and our segmentation to go, right, your business does X, Y, Z. There's no point targeting those businesses because they'll never ever buy your services, whereas these ones absolutely will. And then we work with them a stage further, which goes, if you're doing, let's call it email, 
LinkedIn, whatever it might be, what's the message we were actually really trying to put in front of people and how do we make it relevant to those people as well? So we're taking up a very new age, grown up approach to how we market. Um, the days of loading a million emails, blast them out the door are well and truly gone, thank God. It's all about how do we segment the best 20,000, 100,000, whatever it might be, to put the right message in front of the right people. The kind of emails I was talking about, uh, they're in my junk email box and sometimes in my LinkedIn box. They don't tend to come from Britain when you really drill down. They're not within the regulatory environment. And also, if, if as a smaller business, I wanted to use email data, I would worry about having the the bandwidth in my business to make sure I was compliant. If your clients use you, do you ensure compliance? Can they subcontract that regulatory uh, um, liability to you? It depends on what services they take. If we're running outreach, et cetera, we'll do a ton of work around the message, the segmentation, et cetera. When we work within their internal data, i.e. their CRM data, then it becomes around their compliance and their process. One of the things we do a lot of actually as a business and and this certainly more in go live days than in previous lives we spend a lot of time with dpos and infosec teams really understanding their processes and then educating them on what gdpr and more importantly what pecker means pause i'm going to dial it back do, do with gpos are just giving me the acronyms what they mean uh, data protection officers right. sorry okay right got you right, excellent look you've done a great job the, the, the business is is clearly on a roll um I gave you the I gave the audience listening and watching these big names that you work for. Do you work for smaller names? Are you able to construct campaigns for small businesses? Yeah, hundred percent. So the way we always explain it to smaller corporate medium we work with with everybody is you've got goals and ambitions as a business that might be to grow, that might be to retain, that might be to understand your client data better. We come in and we take a real long approach. So funny enough, when we have our first meetings with customers, they go, oh, we're not buying today. And we go, we don't want you to buy today. We need to find out more and more about your business. Because at this point in time, we can't make recommendations. We don't understand your targets. We don't understand what you're trying to achieve. So we work with that achievement piece first around where are you going? And then by default, we can become an extension of that. So we've got clients who are local photocopier type um, regional areas where they're selling photocopiers. And obviously you've mentioned the big the big brands or the big logos, which everyone loves to work with, your Amazons, your Tor Talks, but we work with everybody. And ultimately, if you've got a business which wants to grow or you want to retain customers or you want to work within your data, we're a great company to work with. Last question. This links to our next interview, so we're going for a tiny segue here. This is a week of AI being discussed in the British economy with the summit at Bletchley Park. Uh, has your business... Uh, been using AI? Does it have plans to use AI? Does it have an AI strategy? So AI, big buzzword, as we all know. And actually, in our world, we absolutely have used AI. Um, when you look at ChatGPT, Bard, etc., they're great from research perspectives. So when you look at it and go, well, we've got a customer in this industry, well, what kind of sectors which would love to work with these types of companies, so on and so forth. And actually, we can even build creatives out of ChatGPT. Now, the challenge with that is when you take the human element out of AI, 
ESPs and or email sending receivers, if you like. So you send an email to G Suite, it receives. They start to recognize AI-generated content. So you do need that human element. So we're a business which loves AI, absolutely does. But we're also backing that up with human-led processes. So what is it that the humans are doing with the AI to get the most out of it? Oh, we're, we are massive adopters of it, 100%. Adam, that was a fascinating interview. I wish you the best in the business. I love a growing business in the north of England. You're the solution to the problems we got, not uh, nothing else, and that's fantastic. Same with uh, Equinor and Doggerbank. Thank you very much. Now let's look to the future. My colleague Josh Haverkin is going to look at a future scaping, what AI is all about, and how the, how the, uh, the new summit fits into the landscape. Thank you, Graham. This week, I'm joined by Salvia Merza from Resonant Consulting. Now, she doesn't want me to say that she's an AI expert, and I'll let her explain why, but she's certainly well-versed in the latest goings-on in AI. Um, and what a week to talk to her. This week, Rishi Sunak has been hosting the UK AI Safety Summit, and Joe Biden over in the US has been talking about introducing some regulations of his own. So who else, who better to speak to than Salvia? She's a transatlantic, not AI expert, but very well-versed in AI. Thank you for joining us, Salvia. Yeah, wonderful. And I do say that. I do they say that kind of lightly, but I also say that seriously, right? So AI is such an evolving technology that I don't want anyone to come out and say that they are an AI expert right now. We are all still learning. Well, it's interesting that you say that um, comments from Rishi Sunak was part of the reason why you moved over to the UK. What is it that he said that really caught your attention and made you make such a big change in your life? Well, he was the first global leader that said that he was very interested in implementing AI into um, the into the British com community. And I felt very excited by that. I am a British citizen and I had a choice. I could have gone to America. I could have gone to any other place, but I decided to choose England because of his stance on it. Okay. Well, I think it's it's interesting that you've said that. I mean, clearly for him to turn around and in from your perspective now try and put regulations in place, do you not agree that there should be some variety of regulation? Okay, so I am not anti-regulation because I believe that there is a lot of worry that's around this technology. And the reason why I know that there's worry around this is because the change that's associated with it is going to be so transformative. This is a bigger technology than we ever seen in our lifetimes. And it's going to change the way that we do everything. In two to three years from now, we're not going to recognize the global landscape based on the implementation of AI within everything that we do. So yeah, it's scary. It's definitely scary. And when we feel afraid, then what we want people to do is to provide regulation for us. And that feels comforting. But unfortunately, what does that regulation look like? We've had multiple um, technology revolutions over the past 20 years where governments have tried to regulate them. They were not even clearly as intelligent as artificial intelligence is right now. And they weren't able to have any regulation based on any kind of social media platforms, on the dark web. So what's the precedence? That's what I'm asking. I'm asking what is the precedence and how do we move forward from here? What does that regulation look like? Because if it hinders us, then that's going to be a problem because this is a global movement that's happening. AI is available to every single person on the planet. And if every person has access to something that is more powerful than military-grade intelligence, then if our government 
puts regulation on us that restricts us from being able to use it, that's going to be a very difficult thing for us to um, to live with. Okay. Well, I understand the um, the wider things that AI might help um, might be a solution towards solving. Mm-hmm. But how how would it impact the everyday man on the street who goes about their day? It, how how is the everyday world going to look in five years impacted by AI? Well, I find it really interesting. So if you're using ChatGPT right now, what you found is you started to use it for more than just rewriting your text messages in your email. You know, we have a feature on ChatGPT now that allows you to upload pictures to it. And what people did with that, and that was, you know, big news, they started uploading the contents of their refrigerator to ChatGPT and asking it to go ahead and design menus based on what was in their refrigerator. And it did it. So you know, from that perspective, it becomes your personal assistant. It, it helps you be able to guide you. I know people that use it for counseling to help them be able to deal with difficult situations. We are developing, um, I work with a technology company. We are developing bespoke tools that help people have difficult conversations. So if you have to have a difficult conversation with your child, or if you have to have a difficult conversation with your spouse, AI can help be able to facilitate that and be a mediator in it. So those are just the tip of the iceberg as to what is possible with AI technology. It's going to be quite a simplistic question, Salvia, but are you excited? Are you nervous? Or are you scared of the future with AI? I'm so excited that I can't even contain myself because for me, I'm a person who looks around at our systems and I know that our systems are not working for us anymore. We live in you know, broken systems where our education system is not as effective as what we want it to be. Our healthcare system is not working the way that we want it to be. Our legal system is not working. And, you know, there's only so many band-aids that you can put on it in order to make it function. Eventually, it's going to stop to a halt. And I really believe that this technology is going to be able to fix those systems for us. And it's going to create a new way of doing things that really works for us and helps us to evolve to the next level. Do you think it would be negative for um, the human experience if we were to rely on, and I can see how we could get to this point based on what you said, where we rely on AI to make our decisions for us as opposed to you know, having almost free will and the ability to make our own um, choices in life? I don't think anyone has a problem with taking advice from a wise man, right? AI has all of the information embedded into it. And it basically functions as a wise man with all of this information. So if you are using AI to be able to enhance your understanding or to be able to help you have deeper, more meaningful conversations with people, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that's a beautiful thing to be able to have access to. Because, you know, we live in a world where not everyone has access to the same level of education or the same level of community or the same level of culture. And this is the great equalizer. It allows us to have access to all of that. And, you know, all you need in order to be able to use it is a smartphone. And I have lived in third world countries and I have yet to meet a person in that third world country that didn't have a smartphone. So I understand how important this technology is to raise the human um, consciousness. Salvia. I mean, I asked you that question, were you excited, nervous, or scared? And mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm at the point of, of nerves at the moment. So um, yeah. it'll be interesting to see how it all comes out. But thank you very much for, for your time today. 
And it's okay to be nervous, Joss. It's okay. However you're feeling, however anybody is feeling. It's I'll totally ask okay. ChatGPT how I can feel better, right? That is the best um, statement that you've made in this entire interview. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm going to go back to Graham now, Sammy. It's been lovely so talking much. to you. All right. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Now, Josh Havakin does these videos regularly on our program, and if you want to be on his interview or come into our studio and talk, do get in touch with me via LinkedIn because we're always looking for interesting guests, and boy, we've had some interesting guests in this edition of the Northern Business Podcast. Join us next time. Never miss an episode. Like, rate, and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.